Hello, you're listening to the Crosspoint Youth Podcast, and I'm your host, Tyler Kirkpatrick, the youth pastor at Crosspoint Church in Columbus, Georgia. Today, we have the privilege to enter into a conversation with Sam Alberry and discuss how the Bible speaks to human sexuality, and in particular, what the Bible says about homosexuality. Sam is a prolific conference speaker, an apologist and writer for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, a consulting editor for the Gospel Coalition, an honorary staff member at Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and the author of a number of books including Is God Anti-Gay? Why Bother with Church? Seven Myths About Singleness? And most recently, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Sam has also written extensively for numerous organizations including the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. To find out more about Sam, you can check out his website at samalberry.com and follow him on Twitter at samalberry. So without further ado, it's an honor to welcome Sam to the podcast. Sam, thank you for joining us. We are very appreciative of your time um, in just taking a, a bit of your busy schedule and giving that to us to answer a few questions. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you wrote a book uh, that was published in 2013. I think it was republished a couple of times, but in 2013 originally, and it's entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? So my first question for you is is simply that, is God anti-gay? <laughs> um, 2013 feels like a very, very long time ago now. Um, and it's still a pressing question. Um, the answer is is... Yes, in the sense of he does not approve anywhere of, of same-sex romantic behavior. Um, but I'd also want to say no in the sense that God is is calling all of us to turn to him and offering his son to all of us to turn to him. So I'd want gay people to, to know that they can have a God who is who could not be more for them if they come to Christ. So that's the short answer anyway. Yeah, no, and I think that's really helpful. Um, and, and really that kind of goes into my next question. You also wrote a commentary on the, the book of James, uh, and I believe that was published somewhere around 2015. So a, a couple years after you had written, and I'm sure probably you spoke a lot on the topic of same-sex attraction, homosexuality, LGBTQ+, all of those um, issues. In fact, I had a, a seminary professor one time. Um, he's African American. I'm sure you know him. I won't say his name, but he had told us in class one time. He said, "You know, I'm, I'm writing a book on Galatians right now. It's a real good commentary." And still, the only thing people want me to talk about is what it's like to be an African American in the church. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I want to, um, you know, keep in line with the conversation we're having. But, but I, w- I do want to talk about James um, one twelve through fifteen, and I'll, I'll read that for you. Uh, James here says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what I want maybe you to do is just kind of flesh that out in terms of of same-sex attraction, Uh, because to me, uh, especially how I grew up, it seems that people have blurred the line, especially 
with the the topic of homosexuality. They've blurred the line between uh, same-sex attraction and same-sex actions. So how would you mm. maybe apply uh, James 1 to that? Yeah, it's a key passage. I think it really helps us. There's a couple of others I, I would want to pull in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Matthew 5, 27, 28, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is talking about things like murder and adultery. He makes it very clear that it's not just physical actions that, that constitute the sin, but the the kind of heart desire to do those things. So, you know, if you if you look at someone with lustful intent, Jesus says you've already committed adultery in your heart. So we we mustn't, I think, draw a you know, I think it's wrong to say it's only the physical expression of sin that is sinful. Everything else is fine because Jesus is saying actually you can be committing a, a sin in your heart that you never actually physically perform mm -hmm. with your body. I think James is making a, a slightly different distinction. I think James is, is talking about the distinction between temptation and sin. Jesus is saying sin can be both internal and external. James is saying that um, temptation gives birth to sin. So that it's it's sort of in a slightly different but overlapping category. And James certainly makes it very clear that we can't pin our temptations on, on God. We can't just say, well, God made me this way, so it's his fault for giving me these desires. James uh, James's language is fascinating because he says we're, we're tempted when it's our own internal desires that, that ensnare us. So there's both, we're both the hunter and the hunted yeah. in this. Um, the, I, 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 I think it's, it's healthy to make a bit of a distinction between temptation and sin. But at the same time, James is very clear where our temptations come from. They mm. come from our fallen nature. Mm. So I, I, to those who, who know that this is an area of, of temptation, I, I don't want to say the mere fact you have the capacity to be tempted is your, you know, is is a sin right now, but I do want to say the capacity to be tempted by this does come from from our fallen desires. It's a sign of our fallenness, um, and those desires, at whatever stage they present themselves to us, need to be rejected, put to death, and fled. Um, so I think the relationship between temptation and attraction is a is a, just a slightly more nuanced one. Um, and obviously this applies to all of us with any kind of uh, sexual temptation or any kind of non-sexual sexual temptation. We're all in the same boat here. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. So the very fact that I experience same-sex attraction means at the moment of experiencing the attraction, I need to put it to death in my heart. Mm -hmm. The very fact that I know this is a form of temptation that that I experience means that it's just a, another sign of, of why we all need to be born again, um, that actually it's something innate within my sinful nature that is attracted to this kind of temptation that, that responds to it. And that's why I'm glad to have a new nature in Christ. Mm. I'm, glad, I'm glad to be having desires that are, are gradually being shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit. And our sinful desires don't disappear from us entirely in this life, sadly, but 
we do find a, a, a growing desire for Christ um, alongside hopefully a diminishing desire for sin. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's such a helpful way to explain that. I mean, especially in light of original sin and just what you're saying, like we all have a capacity for all types of grotesque behaviors in the eyes of God, whether it be a white lie or disobeying our parents or gossip or um, acting on any sinful desire, being enticed and giving in to our desires. Um, And so I, I do, I think that's such a helpful way to think through those things. And two, I think it's helpful in terms of people who are not same sex attracted, but trying to minister to people who are, it kind of levels the playing field in a sense of you and I are both fighting the same battle, the same type of battle. We are, we are both uh, waging war with the old man and uh, trying to live according to the new man. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, uh, I, I, I appreciate your response to that because I believe like the church that I grew up in, and maybe it was not the church really that taught this, but just kind of what I gathered as I grew up, hmm. it it just always seemed to me that um, homosexuality of, of any type was just sin. Like there, there were no um, necessarily categories given in terms of, well, I'm, I'm being tempted. However, I'm not acting, uh, you know, I'm not even thinking sinfully. Uh, it's just a capacity that I have. That wasn't, that was never a category um, that I had. And I believe probably that did quite a bit of harm, not only to um, same-sex attracted people, but maybe people that were struggling with other types of sins as well. Mm. And uh, there was just no sense of being able to be tempted and yet not in sin. Um, yeah. and, and the gospel is, um, it's, it's so much better than that. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it, Again, it, it applies to all of us. Not every sin is, is exactly the same. Yeah, certainly. Um, but all of us face temptations. All of us face sins. I mean, just the two passages we've referenced already assume the universality of this. James yeah. says, when you're tempted, um, he just assumes that is a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus assumes lust exists in the human heart. Yes. Um, whatever its target might happen to be, whatever species of lust it might be that we we find ourselves given to um there's no room for pride Hmm. and i hope it the the flip side is that there's there's no need for feeling utterly crushed and utterly dismayed because however grievous our own sins may be however much that might rightly cause us dismay um Jesus is bigger, and if, if he has taken root in our hearts, then however pervasive and, and deeply ingrained some of these sinful desires may seem, Jesus is deeper still, yeah. and they're not bigger than he is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and two, I mean, I, you're exactly right, and I, and I think that goes to verse 14. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I mean, it seems to me that James is saying that uh, this this category of temptation as being something that's um, maybe just a passive thing that we face, it, it seems to me that he is saying temptation is is a very serious place to be. Um, yeah. and, it, and it is spurred from 
the old man, that, that sin nature that we have, it, it comes from the, the desires that we have of worship of self over God. And so, I mean, for anyone that is listening, I mean, I, I would, I would just want to be clear too, that temptation is, is not the better outcome of sin. It seems to be the first step towards sin. And so yeah. fighting temptation means really, I think, putting off and fighting the old man. Uh, yes. And I think that's for all of us. And I think sexual sin is is peculiar in that way because we feel lured and enticed by desire um, sexually because it's such a physical thing. I, I think oftentimes, like, you know, we'll go back to the, the idea of telling a lie. There may be a momentary kind of... Um, selfishness where if I, if I can lie, I can get out of this. I won't get in trouble. I won't get caught. Um, but we, we sometimes don't link that with our innate desire of self, but with Mm -hmm. sexual sin, we almost always do because it's a, it's a physical act. There are, there are things happening, um, not just in our minds, but with our bodies. Um, and so just, just seeing how dangerous it is, uh, to, to kind of flirt with these things. Uh, it's very serious. Yeah, it is. And um, even the language James uses, it's very visual, evocative yeah, language, yeah. lured and enticed. You, you get the sense of um, a predator there. Um, yeah. uh, those, those desires are, are predatory mm. and it's, it, we're victims of ourselves yeah. in that sense. Um, he also uses the language of, of temptation giving birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown. So there's a sense in which we we often think we can control our sexual desires and we can, you know, we'll indulge them this far and no further. Yes, yes. And we feel like we can we can do that. We can negotiate, we can bargain. And James is showing us it's just not the case. And when temptation gives birth to sin, sin grows. Yeah. And any you know, a friend of mine uh came up to me a while ago and said I said, how are you doing? He said, for the first time ever, my son has beaten me in an arm wrestle. Oh. He said, my son is now stronger than me. Oh, wow. Which, you know, any parent, at some point, your kid becomes stronger than you yes. do. Yep. And it's the same with temptation and sin. And we, we think we can control it, but all the time we indulge it, we're giving it more strength. Mm. And James, as it gets to the point where it actually becomes stronger than us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's such an important thing. And, and, and you know, um, I guess if I could tell my younger self um, one thing uh, about fighting sin would be to take it seriously and to realize how much the old man in me wants to conquer the new nature that I have in Christ. Yeah. Um, everything within me in terms of my sin nature wants to serve me and no one else. Um, and so, yeah, just taking it very seriously, um, I- indeed. And I think if I could tell my younger self something, it, it would be the verse in, in Titus 2 that it's the grace of God that teaches us mm. to say no to ungodliness. Mm. I've, I've always, I think partly because of how I've been taught over the years, but it's always seemed to be when it comes to particularly things like sexual sin, issues like masturbation, it always seems yep. to be, well, if we can scold people enough into stopping it. Yes. Whereas it's the grace of God, um, not fear of man or fear of rebuke or embarrassment, 
that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And it, one of the things I found just in the last few years is tr- really trying to lean into the grace of Jesus, understand that more, understand his his tender heartedness yes. to us, and that is what moves us to want him more than sin. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, too, just uh, it, it's one of the things that even if you could tell your younger self, it just takes time steeping in the Word of God and spending time with Him um, to even begin to plumb the fathomless depths of His grace and mercy and kindness to us uh, yeah. and the work He's doing in us on our behalf. Uh, so my, my next question, it's, it's kind of along the same lines, and we've, we've kind of um, answered it in a roundabout way. But what would you say to the argument that same-sex attraction doesn't become sin until you physically act upon it? Um, so I'm thinking about the distinction someone may have between thoughts and actions. Yeah, I think that the passage in Matthew 5 responds to that very clearly. Yeah. Um, there are sins of the mind as well as sins of the of the body. And um, just because, you know, Jesus makes it very clear, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you have broken the commandment. Yeah. Um, you may never have physically touched that person. They may not even know you're doing it. It may be entirely within the privacy of your own mind, but Jesus says you're you're sinning. Yeah. Um, so it, it the, the Bible condemns certain thoughts as well as certain actions, mm. and just because it's a, it's a mental process doesn't mean it hasn't become a sin yet. Yeah. Um, to, to fantasize about somebody else in a lustful way is sinning. Yeah. Um, and by the by, it, it's going to make it much harder to resist the physical sin if we've been mentally rehearsing it. Yes. Over and over again. Yes. But the mental rehearsing is itself sin. Yeah. So um, Jesus Jesus won't let us get away with that. And, and again, that's, that's his word to all of us. And it's why we need him. Yes. Um, and, and by extension part of what he's doing there is showing us the whole point of the Ten Commandments was to show us we don't have it within our hearts to live righteously before God. And therefore, you know, we're designed to need Jesus in this area of life. Yeah, absolutely. So the very fact that these things go on in our, our minds and hearts is why we need a Jesus who is good news for sexual sinners. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amen. All of us. <laughs> um, so we have um, conveniently been talking about Jesus. Go figure. What would you say to someone who makes the argument, and I'm sure you've heard it many, many times, that Jesus never mentions homosexuality? And I guess maybe yeah. the argument would continue because he doesn't, and Jesus is the final word, um, which obviously would be a bit skewed, a skewed understanding of, of the word of God. Um, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I'd say it's it's right. Jesus never mentioned homosexuality explicitly, but he he said enough things to to show us how we're to think about it. Um, Jesus teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman in Matthew nineteen. He teaches us that sex outside the covenant of marriage is sinful. Matthew fifteen um, nineteen and twenty, I think. So. What Jesus says about marriage is enough to show us 
that same-sex romantic and sexual behavior is, is not permitted by God. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing is Jesus gave his apostles his own authority to write to and to teach the church, and his apostles do make it very explicitly clear. And they, they carry the authority of Jesus Christ. We can't pit an apostle against Jesus um, without doing violence to both Jesus and the apostle. Um, Jesus said they, they have the authority to speak on his behalf. So the whole Bible is consistent on this. Mm. And there are many things that we know clearly as, as Christians to be wrong that Jesus never explicitly mentioned. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a logical fallacy to say, well, only things that Jesus explicitly condemned are we allowed to say is sinful. You know, if I go and, I don't think Jesus says it's, Jesus doesn't, and this is off the top of my head and probably a bit stupid, but Jesus doesn't explicitly say you mustn't punch an elderly lady in the face. Yeah. But he says enough things for me to know that that's not right. Yeah. So I can't hide behind the fact, well, Jesus never mentioned punching old people, so therefore the church can't condemn it and you've got to affirm that inclination in me. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. And that there's a wider point as well, which is that the, the whole Bible shows us not only that, that marriage is between a man and a woman and that therefore same-sex romantic partnerships are not right, but it shows us why marriages between a man and a woman. And this is, again, does get us back into the teaching of Jesus because among the things Jesus called himself is the word bridegroom. Yeah, He's not just come to be a savior and a redeemer and the son of God and the Christ. Gloriously, he's all of those things. He also said that he's come to be a bridegroom. Yeah. So there's something marital going on um, in the ministry of Jesus to us on behalf of, of God the Father. Yeah. Which then shapes and informs our sexual ethic as believers. So we find that therefore if we if we begin to accept and affirm same-sex relationships, we're not just going against a command of the Bible, we're actually going against the grain of the gospel itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sam, you mentioned that Matthew 19, um, and, and there it's, it's essentially Jesus teaching about marriage and, and saying the two shall become one flesh. I mean, obviously that points us back to Genesis 2, 24, um, mm -hmm. when, when God himself tells us that a man will leave his mother and father and join with his wife and become one flesh. I, I would assume, I mean, you can obviously speak to this yourself, but I would assume that you and I would be completely okay with our biblical understanding of sexuality if all we had was Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, yeah. I don't think we would really need any particular passages about uh, sexual immorality or homosexuality or any of those number of things. I think Genesis 1 and 2 is, is, is pretty clear in terms of what God created us for. Um, so would you would you agree that you think that Jesus is implicitly stating his ground on on sexual rights and wrongs in Genesis chapter two? I think he is. I think he's doing it explicitly. Yeah. Um, in Matthew nineteen, he yeah. references both Genesis one and Genesis two. Yeah. And shows us, and he actually he he references them as being words of the Creator. So this is the creator's blueprint for human sexuality. Yeah. 
So this whole discussion ultimately turns not on what the Bible says about homosexuality, but on what the Bible says about marriage. Yeah. As, as you know, God's blueprint for, for human sexuality, yeah. that is the key issue. Yeah. So we could have none of the passages that mention homosexuality and still know exactly what to think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um. you, you know, I made that point uh, two Sundays ago. So as we've addressed this uh, topic in our youth group, we we did it in two parts. We did Genesis one and two two Sundays ago, and uh, that that's pretty much what we talked about was God's good intention, an intention that has never changed, not even post Genesis three, and that His desire for us in terms of our sexuality is yes, it's good for us, it's it's fulfilling for us, but more importantly and ultimately, it's glorifying to Him. And so when we look at something like human sexuality, our our first inclination should never be, well, how does it make me feel or how do I feel? But rather, is this bringing glory to the creator? Is my action yeah. as a creature in line with God's good plan for me? Um, and I just think that's so important. And, and to, I mean, for our young people, especially here at uh, Cross Point Church, that's the thing that I want them to understand. Um, I, I feel like often as believers, we feel the pressure of being able to explain uh, and, and even the point in Genesis 19, understanding uh, this Hebrew word for sodomy and, and all of these things. I had, a, I had a student come up to me and say, well, what about that Hebrew word in Genesis 19? And I was just like, what are you talking? How do you know this? Um, yeah. But these are, are mainstream arguments that are that are being made. Um and I, and I just think if we understand Genesis 1 and 2 well, um, that's the ground upon which we stand. Uh, our argument will never be precise or good enough to convert anyone out of any sort of sin. Uh, and so I, I just think relieving us of that burden is is kind of helpful. I think so. And the other, the other area where it, it can similarly liberate is it doesn't ultimately matter it's interesting, but it doesn't matter what kinds of same-sex relationship Paul did or didn't know about yeah. in the Roman world. Yeah. And I remember getting to a really kind of heavy conversation with someone about, you know, did did Rome have consensual same-sex romantic partnerships in the way that we envisage them today? Mm -hmm. And And I suddenly thought, it can't really be the case that this whole area of Christian ethics turns on who's got the more degrees in classics. Yeah. And that can't be the final kind of determiner of, of something so significant to, to Christian living. And so I'm interested in that side of things. It's always interesting to know what, what the kind of historical backdrop was in Rome and, and what Paul is would have been aware of, but that mm -hmm. ultimately isn't determining. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, and two, it seems that um, those are the lo a lot of the arguments that are being made. And, and sometimes, too, I, I believe that we're all prone to trying to win arguments by information overload, um, bring, yeah. bringing up a lot of points that can't be answered on the spot. Yeah, um, who's got the who's got the most arcane detail? Exactly, that can't be? exactly. Um, and and, yeah. I, and that's you know, even if those people are right, I, I just think that that's that's really kind of intellectually dishonest. That's, that's not a great yeah. way to discuss you can, things. You can refute someone, but you can't win them. That's right. That way. That's right. Um, yeah. I just think that's such an important thing for us as believers to, to, to realize and to grasp. Um, 
And two, just to bring it back around, that that we stand on the word of God and the word of God is the mm-hmm. power of God and the power of God in terms of conversion does not reside in us. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. in his word and through the working of his spirit. And so that's where we rest. Um, okay, Sam. So let's uh, maybe ask and answer some questions that are maybe a little bit more applicable. Uh, for you specifically, how were Christians helpful in pointing you to Christ uh, in terms of your struggle against same-sex attraction? And maybe what are some examples of things that were unhelpful and and possibly mm-hmm. even harmful to you? And, and by the way, before you answer that, when did you first um, realize that you were same-sex attracted? It would have been around the time I was 15, okay. uh, sorry, 16, 17. Um, it was, this was <laughs> a very long time ago now. Um, <laughs> gosh, coming up for 30 years ago, um, ouch. And so these things weren't culturally on the table in the way that they are now. So I think if it was now, I would have been much more aware much earlier on okay. because these categories are, are far more apparent and you know immediate to yeah. us. But it took me a, a very long time to figure that out, but probably around that kind of age. Um, the thing, the single thing that has helped me the most has been really good, healthy Christian friendships. Mm. Um, when I first started to to share this issue with a handful of Christian friends around me, the very fact that it didn't change how they saw me or have a negative impact on our friendship um, made me realize this, that again, wrestling this temptation didn't in any way spiritually disqualify me. And the fact that in pretty much every case, it, it ended up deepening the friendship because it meant we were now sharing on a slightly more personal level. I I found that me disclosing something so personal often meant that they felt able to do the same. And therefore the friendship became deeper as a result. All of those things made me think, okay, this is, A, there is good that can come from this. And B, God is not rejecting me simply because this is a form of temptation I experience. Yes. And that lack of rejection was being tangibly demonstrated through Christian friends actually drawing closer and growing in their affection and warmth because they wanted to help their friend and brother with this with this battle. Yeah. Um, and again, some of them would also reciprocate and say, here's some of the crazy stuff that my mind gets off at, um, which again made me feel less isolated and less, I mean, none of them were same-sex attracted, but all of them wrestled with their own forms of sexual perversity. Yes. And none of us did that in a way to kind of validate one another, but it it just made you realize, okay, we're all fighting in the trenches of having crazy sexual thoughts. Yeah. Um, And there's some reassurance in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's uh, like I had mentioned, I think before to you, I was in the army for a while and there's something comforting about being in battle and looking to the left and right and seeing brothers and sisters fighting the same battle. Uh, mm. You may be uh, engaging a different enemy in terms of the, the, the person that you have um, locked onto, but you're in the same battle. And yeah. there's a, there's a sense of, of camaraderie. There's a, there's a sense of closeness. And, and like you said, there's, there's a sense of, um, 
realizing and feeling like you are not so unique that no one else is struggling with sin. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're all in this together. Yeah. And the more I read the pages of the New Testament, that is the the sort of vibe that is meant to to permeate Christian community, that sense yeah. of we're we're not designed to fight these things on our own. Um, and I was enormously strengthened just by the presence of really good Christian brothers coming alongside, mm. rooting for me at times, correcting me, all of those things. But in a sense, we're all here to help each other yeah, praise move God. forwards. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of things that, that didn't help, probably the kind of Christian response or, or so-called Christian response that has the opposite effect um, of treating this as if it's in a category entirely of its own and therefore that you belong in a category entirely of your own. Yes. Which can then actually reinforce the the isolation. So there's – I've seen within the, the wider Christian community um, two, two ways of pushing Christians into kind of same-sex sexual sin – one is by having a kind of more liberal approach to Jesus' teaching and by saying it's actually fine, the Bible's okay with this, you can go for it, it's not a problem. Yes. Um, that's a kind of a pull factor. But there's also a push factor, I think, from some perhaps more conservative but not biblically conservative Christians mm -hmm. who have a kind of cultural revulsion in a way that can actually make you feel like, I, I just don't belong with Christians. Yes. And if they're constantly trying to push you away and saying you're gross and we don't want you around us, then actually it would be very easy for someone to feel, well, I okay, I'll just go with where I feel like I do belong. Um, yeah. And I've seen a bit of that. I've not experienced much of that, but I've seen a lot of it um, in other parts of the Christian world. And, you know, I've got a friend who's at a, a, a church where – Sex before marriage between a man, a man and a woman, no one has a problem with. Mm. But the two things he was told growing up were, don't ever date a black person and don't be gay. Yeah. So when, when Christians isolate certain things and say, well, you know, it, it's just a total lack of consistency. <laughs> and it, it's, it's cultural preferences determining right and wrong rather than the Bible. Yeah. But it's cultural preferences being clothed in supposedly this is what Christians think and believe. Yes. You know, Sam, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm 31 years old. I was born and raised in Southern Ohio, which is a, interestingly a part of Appalachia. So I don't mm -hmm. know if you've, um, Hillbilly Elegy, I think there's a documentary on Netflix yes. now. Uh, that's my life. And uh, I, I first read J.D. Vance's book, um, and it's like probably one of my top five just because of how well it communicates what I kind of felt growing up but couldn't communicate myself. Um, but, but a point I want to make as well, and I think one of the reasons it's so important for the church not to um, embrace some sort of social gospel or some sort of policy gospel or some sort of hobby horse gospel but rather the whole counsel of the gospel 
is because we can, yes, slip into uh, you know a liberal view of theology, but we can also, I think, slip into maybe what might be more of a middle ground in saying, okay, well, yes, we embrace it, or no, we completely denounce it. But I grew up kind of somewhere in the middle where we just didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so on the issue of um, a, a black person and a white person dating or being married, my church never denounced that. But I was able to grow up believing that unequally yoked meant black and white. Wow. And it's not because I did not attend a church that didn't preach the true real gospel. It was simply because I attended a church that didn't speak to these types of issues. And so I think what you do, and I think as, as pastors, what we realize is the areas that we don't speak about, we are allowing people to be informed either by the word of God on their own, which would, would be wonderful, or maybe more likely by the culture mm-hmm. um, and, and what they hear, what they think, uh, what maybe feels right, um, what, is, what is ingrained in them in terms of their upbringing. And so, yeah. yeah the world, the world is, is always, well, not always, but often better at discipleship than we are. Oh, yeah. So if we're not discipling yes. someone on something, it's not that they're being undiscipled. It just means we're, we're letting culture disciple them instead. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I told our parents just recently in an email, um, one of the things we need to realize is that we have potentially, I think, rightfully desired to keep our kids as pure as possible for as long as possible, um, you know, just kind of in this bliss-like state for as long as we possibly can, that we've accidentally and erroneously allowed the culture to be the first word on these issues. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that oftentimes the first word is really the loudest word. And yeah. so instead of being able to kind of build a foundation of, in this instance, sexuality and God's good intention. And, and, you know, there's a there's an appropriate way, I think, to talk to your children, you know, as young as three, four, five, what, whatever their ability is, and, and just talking about the way God created us and, and not having to be explicit at all, but beginning to build those foundations very early. So when the time does come, we're not, as Christian parents, being reactionary to the discipling of the world. We are reminding them, undergirding what they already have been taught. Um, And I fear that out of a, again, maybe a good desire, but in other cases, maybe just a desire to not have uncomfortable conversations, we have let the culture speak very loudly um, into our children. And the trouble is if, if culture starts and establishes the conversation, it's setting the ground rules, the parameters, the tone. And then when the, the Christian parent or teacher then tries to join in that conversation further down the road, they're, they're playing catch up. Yeah. Certain things will have to be unlearned first. And they may be speaking a slightly different language. Yeah. So the vernacular has already been established by yes. the culture. So yeah, just some, I, I remember somebody asking Jen Wilkin, when, when is the right time to bring up the subject of sex, sexuality yeah. with kids? And she said, ideally, just before their school does or their peers do, because you don't want to sound like you're behind the kind of curve on this. Yeah. Um, you want to kind of, you don't want to be constantly playing catch up. No. But you want to be sort of saying, actually, it's not your friends who are the experts on this. And, you know, parents are just, you know, 
bumbling along in the background, trying to do their haplessly, trying to catch up with that. You want to say, we, we know about these things. We're going to establish how you think about them. Yes. And then together we can go into conversation with what you're hearing from other people. Yes. And, 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 you know, the other thing, Sam, um, so I have, uh, four children, all boys. Um, so you can add me to your prayer list. It's <laughs> a um, lot of testosterone for one building. It's so much. <laughs> um, our oldest is seven and our youngest is six months and it's already somehow there's testosterone in the air. I don't know how it exists, but it's there. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things we often think about is, especially in terms of, you know, our seven-year-old in particular watching shows and kind of being, um, you know, somewhat indoctrinated, maybe not so much um, about the way he reasons the way the world works, but something that is being cultivated very clearly uh, are his feelings. And so while we are still discipling our son, uh, he has professed faith, you know, we're still working on that and talking through that. But one of the things that I have realized very clearly is that it's almost easier to combat thought than it is feelings. And especially with our uh, middle school, high school, uh, believing children, students, um, it's not really hard to get them to say, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what the Bible says about this? It's much different to say, okay, well, I know you have that gay friend. Are they living in sin? And if they continue in this life, are they destined for hell? That's a much more difficult question to answer for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that those conversations have to start sooner rather than later. And, and, and too, I think every parent needs to be so engaged with their particular children that they can discern that for themselves. I think so. And it, excuse me, it helps to start that conversation earlier, but also probably at a principal level rather than about that specific exactly. individual or that specific sin. So exactly. let's, Let's get the categories in place first and then see how they apply in different scenarios that that's we right. encounter. That's right. And then again, that's why I had mentioned just Genesis 1 and 2, uh, laying that foundation and just seeing God's general good design and pattern. Um, so you're not. So you're not um, always finding yourself reacting to a, a friend um, or you know a YouTube figure personality. Um, you know, mm. you've laid groundwork that is general and biblical, uh, and then you can go um, as uh, specific as you need to as it comes up. Yeah. Um, okay, Sam. So my next question for you, and I think it's probably maybe the most important question that we can ask just for this type of conversation. What would your counsel be to a young Christian struggling with and fighting against same-sex attraction? Um. I'd want them to know that the Bible affirms them in that struggle, that the sign of the Spirit being powerfully at work in us isn't that there's no battle with sin, but but that there's an almighty battle with sin. Um, So the very fact that they're seeking to fight this is a sign that the Spirit is working within them and that God God is for them. Yeah. Um, so far from disqualifying them, this actually kind of corroborates the, the presence of Christ in them. Yeah. Um, it's not defining. Uh, we're not defined by 
our temptations. We're not defined by our our past sins. Um, We're defined by our future. Uh, We are now who we are in Christ, and that is defined by who we will be in the new creation. So however deep that sin may feel it goes, it is not the real you now to be indulging in it. And one of the lies that the evil one tells us is, come on, this is who you are. Stop trying to be someone you're not. Stop trying to be this other Christian-y, holy type thing that you're clearly not. Yeah. Whereas actually passages like Romans 6 especially help us on this. Um, I am never being more true to myself as a believer than when I'm pursuing holiness. Yes. Because that is who I am at the most deep level in Christ. And it's now Mm. sin rather than obedience that is actually going against the grain of my truest identity. Yes. Yeah. So I think that I'd, I'd also just say to them, you're not designed to fight this on your own. Find some some fellow warriors who know what it is to battle and encourage each other. Have, have people that you can walk in the light with and who will honor you for your labors and encourage you and when needed, challenge you. Yeah. Amen. Well, Sam, um, I just want to thank you for your time. I'm sure that all who listen to this conversation will be edified by it. And on behalf of Crosspoint Youth, um, I I just want to thank you so much for answering some of our questions. Hey, you're so welcome. I'm really glad to have this time with you.